Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice, committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news, analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning and welcome to Green Left Radio. Now we're currently having technical issues right now. Hey, I can't stop this thing from going around circles. Uh, I'm not hearing anything right now. Oh. Uh, uh, apologies, please. Sorry about that. Yes. The tube bits going a bit strange and going around in circles like a, it's on a loop. But anyway, good morning everybody and this is Green Left Radio. And we have Jacob. Janice and, and Malita in the studio here, and we've got heaps to talk about. Oh, well, um, it's a big day tomorrow. I, uh, well, <laughs> yeah, what is happening tomorrow again? Oh, right, the election. You know, the uh, I, th- I think the the pollsters, the pollsters have been prognosing that a a major party was going to win and take the reins of uh, governing this country on behalf of the ruling class. Janet, how's the but true. <laughs> well, I guess um, I guess maybe going be a good time to sort of you know reflect on you know the federal kind of ca- election, you know how Indeed. what have you know what has been sort of the issues that have been kind of dominated mm. in in the election campaign from like all major parties. Yeah, yes. the problem is you know everybody talks about the dominant issues. Should we be talking about issues that should have been addressed but hasn't been addressed? Well, wow, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the, yes. the whole point, you know. Our program is to sort of give voices, give voices to issues and you know, um, to particular perspectives that uh, you do not see on the mainstream uh, media. And yet, they're Indeed. important issues. Um, I think one of the issues. Have you got all the volume? To, yep. One of the issues that I, I, I think y'all should talk about is youth, young people. Mm, indeed. No one has mentioned young people, and yet 40% of voters in these elections are going to be young people. Mm. Well, it's a, it's interesting. Um, there's been sort of, um, you know, there's a, always, there's um, been um, one thing that's sort of that has been kind of discussed um, lately is um, is you know the idea of how we should you know lower the lower the a. Um, there was actually a, a poll recently um, that polled Australian voters um, uh, um, that basically found out you know the, the issues that they you know care about and. Um, the fr- the three main ones was um, the first one was uh, a treatment of asylum seekers. Um, the second um, one was I'm pretty sure it was climate um, change, and um, the next one up was probably was sort of these were sort of our amalgamation of different issues. For example, housing affordability, um, tax, um, but the main kind of two sort of issues um, were. Um, refugees and climate change, and that's actually I have, refugees is one issue I get compared to the last federal election um, that hasn't actually made the mainstream as much mm. as we well. To be fair, when it was in the mainstream, it was in a very scapegoating kind of terrible context. Um, 
For example, in uh, the last federal election, one of um, the main sort of um, things from that came out of Abbott is that we need to stop the boats. Um, yes, that uh, you know, that three were. were three-word slogan over and over and over and again. Oh, I think I'm re- I've read this um, wrong. Um, the other issue was um, marriage equality. The third issue was yes. actually marriage equality. The first was um, refugees. second was uh, climate change. And the third was marriage equality. I'm surprised. I'm actually quite surprised that, uh, you know, uh, higher education and uh, housing did not make it to, to the top. Well, those, are, um, those were... Concerns of young people, but they didn't make sort of the top three in terms of this research study mm-hmm. with, that was done. And what shocks me is that um, women's issues didn't make it. I don't hear no. anyone talking about women's issues. Equal pay for yes, uh, childcare, uh, low pay, all sorts of women's issues. Well, my, my just given my personal kind of opinion on that, um, I actually find um, amongst young people um, that women's issues, actually young people do indeed care a lot about um, women's issues, but they've actually, um, the whole, a lot of those issues are depoliticised, um, particularly that a lot of um, young people don't probably, particularly don't really sort of make the connection um, between sort of inequality um, between sexes and you know the um, the political um, and political um, and politics, um, that's just that's just my sort a personal kind of anecdote, not really scientific, but that's my kind of experience that I find that a lot of young people don't particularly make the connection between politics. And young people are too busy trying to make a living, trying mm-hmm. to pay their bloody fees and studying, running around. It's it's too busy for them, way too busy. And it's hard to focus on so many things and remain political. It's mm. not easy. Well, especially with um, some of the recent sort of changes um, to the welfare system that the coalition government is um, um, pushing. For example, um, they're pushing um, internships um, under the Work for the Doll, which would basically these sort of path internships basically. Um, young people who are on um, welfare would have the choice of opting in to this um, to this uh, assigned internship. Um, it's called a pass pathway one. Usually it's like a it's any kind of like shit job that the that the employers put up and then you get like uh, extra hundred to two hundred dollars on top of your welfare um, payment for Is it a four dollar four dollar yeah it's four dollar four dollar four dollar now that's what you know that's what that's the coalition government's promise of jobs and growth. <laughs> <laughs> Drives you insane jobs and growth. <laughs> and um, in in this article, um, well, I wrote this article <laughs> uh, about you know about young people. You know, whether when whoever wins this election, young people will lose out. Um, one of the issues, I guess, um, that is not really you know talked about is you know housing affordability. Um, that's not really a kind of major issue that's been sort of addressed at all in this federal election campaign. In fact, um, statistics say that um, only 1% of properties in the rental market are affordable um, to people on youth allowance and Newstart, which is a lot where a lot of um, young people rely on their income. And only, well, even for young people with uh, minimum wage jobs, only 5.3% of properties in the market are affordable for those who receive the minimum wage. Um, but within the, this election, the discussion has been dominated by um, negative, this whole sort of rhetoric of negative gearing. Yes, yes, where, investment properties versus ownership. Yeah, investment properties. Um, whereas 
So the coalition has been saying, oh, we're all for negative gearing. The Labor government has just said, oh, yes, we're against negative gearing. But it's it's sort of like the discussion's completely centred within that framework. There's no talk about how any of the major parties are going to make, you know, housing more affordable, Mm -hmm. um, how they invest in public housing. It doesn't... The discussion we've had so far has not given anyone hope that there will be more homes mm. uh, for people who are homeless. That's a problem. There are 22,000 people are homeless any one night in Victoria. There were over like 35,000 waiting on, on the um, you know, public housing list. And you've got a division of housing between public and community housing. There are all sorts of complications. What they've done is privatize public housing mm-hmm. and for no cost. Properties are being transferred from public housing to be managed by private uh, organizations, NGOs and otherwise, and if they charge um, less than 80% of the market rental for the properties, then they can claim to be charitable organizations that therefore the taxes they minimize are all they don't pay tax. Mm. So there's all sorts of shenanigans going on. Mm. No one's talking about it except us. Oh well, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be that fair. There, um, I wouldn't say that because there's there was actually a rally in. Um, Many of those know there's actually currently an occupation happening in Bendigo Street right now mm-hmm. in Collingwood, which is um, all about this um, demand for, you know, more public housing. Um, and they actually organised a rally last Sunday. Um, there was at least um, 50 to 60 people gathered up in the Melbourne State Library and what the main kind of themes um, that was at the rally was against the privatisation of public housing. Um, social housing is absolutely not sufficient because it doesn't, as, you know, Lali said, there's not, it doesn't guarantee any kind of human rights. No, um, doesn't guarantee housing for everyone. Um, I guess a lot of problem is with, um, um, companies like the Salvation Army is that they have a sort of criteria by which you, you have to, you have to prove your, that you deserve to have public housing where, you know, I would argue that that concept of deserving is actually very problematic because you know everyone deserves you know yeah. affordable yeah. housing. Housing is a is a human is a human right. That's, right. that's what that's what doesn't that's seem right. to be commu- uh, being communi- communicated. That's right. No. Now we were talking about the issues addressed by politicians in this um, election campaign. Not that housing is not being addressed by the people who are suffering from it. Yes, the yeah. rally is fine. But the issue we're trying to to, bring, to to highlight here is that none of the politicians have talked about affordable housing. Hmm. How do you increase affordable housing for all age groups? That's what they're not talking about. Yep. They're talking about negative gearing. Yeah, that's for people who already have a property and who are able to buy another hmm. property and negative gear. You know. Obviously, they're well enough, well off enough to be able to afford another property. No. We're talking about the other end of the spectrum where people don't have homes, mm. and no political party has talked about it. Mm. That is the problem, except you know a few of the uh, minor parties, and we won't go into any of the the names because of the blackout on on. Uh, all the stuff, but there are some minor parties that are talking about housing as as a crucial issue. But um, what it, so young people housing, women's issues hasn't been talked about. The fact that childcare workers earn you know terrible um, wages, uh, they, they, there's a huge gap uh, between male and female wages. No one's talking about that. Um, and the fact that young women are coming out. They can expect to earn anything between 17 to 20% less than a male who's doing the same job as that person mm. is. Mm. No one talks about that. Women's, women's issues have been just totally ignored. 
And there's also um, the kind of like high, the rates of domestic violence. Um, not oh, yeah, they're throwing money at it, but you know, in the end, what, what happens in the sort of programs generally is that the people, the professionals who are employed to manage the programs, uh, get highly paid, but actually on the ground, they're cutting the legal services have been cut back, hmm. and the refuges are, are, are limited. There's a waiting list for refugees. So how do people manage to say, well, we're prioritizing domestic violence, we're putting money into it. Yeah, but where is the refugees? Where are the, the people on, on the ground who actually do the, the shit work on the ground to help these women who are uh, victims of domestic violence? In terms of um, childcare pay, there actually is um, an ongoing campaign by U, um, United Voice um, mm. to fight for you know yes. uh, equal pay for early childcare workers because um, early child care workers um, are, are paid far less than any other educator. Though all educators should be paid more, but it's especially sort of, you know, problematic that, you know, early child care workers are especially the ones that are paid significantly less. Part of the reason is that child care workers, um, the way they, they design a child care industry is that you can have one professional to used to be three unqualified people. They might have increased that to much higher and maybe uh, listeners can ring in and let us know but I, I remember vaguely that I think there's one professional to five uh, unqualified people and then there was a battle around that hmm. um, at the moment the fact that childcare is not run by people who are fully qualified like 100% of the staff should be qualified then the peop- children are your most precious you know thing in the world that you have. You know, the house can burn down. You can always replace it. But if you lose a child, it's, it's, re- it's, it's, it's devastating. Mm. So it, it's the value of um, the children is not being put at the forefront. Mm. What's being put in the forefront is the fact that, you know, we need to minimize these jobs because of women's jobs. And after all, anyone can look after a child at home. Yep. It's that attitude, that demeaning, that devaluing of um, women's jobs, so, well, so-called women's jobs, there should be men in there too. Um, any sort of service industry, you find they have really horrible wages, and this is the worst of it. Yep. And it has not been talked about. You know, mm-hmm. they ha- and the childcare industry people have been campaigning for better wages, and, and you might have covered some of those things in your, your yeah, other program. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. You know, you know so it's, it's very clear that they choose to ignore certain topics. Radiothon is still ongoing. We need money to run the station. So all those listeners out there who can afford a few dollars, please, um, it's never too late to donate. In fact, you can donate any time during the, the year 2-3-CR to keep this um, organization running. It's run by volunteers. It's a community organization. We don't have um, funding from big corporations or ad- advertising. So dig deep and give us um, some donation so that we can keep the programs and 3-CR running. Okay, on the line we have Farida Iqbal from Perth. Jacob, over to you. Oh yeah, she. So, um, how do you pronounce it? Farida. Farida, Farida is um so is like a equal kind of love uh, LGBT activist um in Perth who has been sort of heavily involved in um the Safe Schools campaign and has generally always been heavily involved in the campaign for equal love. Um, so we have so Farida, how's it going? You there? Not bad. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> All right. So I guess um, what what the first kind of question we wanted to ask is um, uh, so I'm not that prepared right now. Um, with sort of just generally sort of a, um summary of you know how the sort of equal love campaign has been going in relation to sort of you know 
the, the, the federal election because um, just this weekend um, there was an equal love rally in uh, in Melbourne and I'm pretty sure there was um, um, there was rallies all over Australia. Yeah, this is a pretty decisive election for us. It, it'll determine which terrain we're going to be fighting on for the next few years. If, if there's a Liberal government elected, then, yeah, we, we'll probably see a plebiscite on the table. And, yeah, a lot of queer organisations have, I think, quite rightly been critical of the plebiscite, that it's, yeah, it's a waste of money, especially when they're not intending to fund the safe school um, coalition passed mid 2017, and also it's a waste of time. They, there's no reason why the government can't just legislate for marriage equality immediately. There's, there's, it's clear what public opinion is, and public opinion is in favour of marriage equality. Poll after poll again shows that. So, yeah, we we don't need a plebiscite. But on the other hand, a, pleb- a plebiscite, if we end up with one. I think we should throw ourselves behind the Yes campaign and, yeah, let's do our best to turn it into a mass movement. But then on the other hand, if the Labor government's elected, that's another interesting scenario because they've promised the public to introduce marriage equality pretty much immediately. They've told everyone that it's going to be the first bill introduced once they get up there. But the thing is, they're not binding their vote until 2019, so they can't that they may not deliver on their promise, which would be very, very embarrassing for them. And in either case, we're going to have to continue the struggle. Yeah. In the case of um, the, the Labor Party, um, is, isn't there, like, you know, um, conservative forces within the ALP um, hist- historically and now that have actually prevented um, the mar- marriage equality from being put to the bill? Well... Uh, there is, the, of course, the SDA, which is, yeah, despite being the union that covers retail workers, and yeah, I'd have to guess that most retail workers, a lot of retail workers, are very young, and they would be in favour of marriage equality. Nevertheless, um, yeah, the SDA is always staunchly opposed marriage equality within the Labor Party. But I think looking toward the conservative elements within the Labor Party is kind of missing the point. I think that the Labor Party is inherently a um, bureaucratic, you know, corporate-funded sort of machine, and it's not an instrument of the people. And, this, uh, yeah, the fact that they, they failed to bring in marriage equality when they were last in government, when they could have done it, they could have just bound their vote and get, got it done and dusted, like, that demonstrates that it's not a party of the people. So even in the case of um, of the um, the Labor government winning um, this coming election, um, you would still kind of like you know push for you know in continuous mobilisations of the, on the streets in demand of marriage equality. Yeah, of course, of course. I think that's going to be essential. Yeah, it'd be nice if um, yeah the, the Labor Party just does it, and I think um, it's in their political interest given that they've promised it. Um, so. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I don't trust them. We've we got to keep Rita, one of the things that has caused confusion among people is that, um, well, you know, the, the argument used by the Conservatives, that is, if the people uh, vote to install this law, then it's stronger because it's endorsed by the people. What do you say to people who say that? 
Well, I, I think if this whole thing were to t- pan out like the Irish referendum, that'd be wonderful. I, I think if there was a popular mm-hmm. vote that, and yeah, a, a, a very strong yes majority yes vote, yeah, that would put um, a, enormous pressure on the parliament. Yeah, I, I guess, Larry, it's the delay that is a worry because the more this legislation's delayed the more political sp- space that gives to the right and also now the far right, the organisations like the United Patriot Front and the Australian Christian Lobby to organise. And the plebiscite would give them a perfect platform to organise as well, as well as a, p- a perfect platform for us to organise. And I'm sure we'd defeat them in the end, but it it might not be a pretty process at first. There, there, there might be some suffering. And so the the, pre, the the plebiscite wouldn't be my preferred road, but if that's the terrain we have to fight on, then we we can't be afraid of that. We we have to take that on, and we have to ta- take on the fight for the yes vote. Yeah. On the on the topic of the plebiscite, um, the liberal go- um, the liberal gov- um, I think mostly Scott Scott Morrison and the liberal government by extension have actually you know been quoted on record to say that even if the plebiscite were was. Um, um, were to pass, they would not be obligated to um, to, uh, to fo- follow through with it because plebiscites are non-binding. But the, the Liberal government has actually, Scott Morrison especially, has said, "Oh yes, even if passed, we're not going to do we're not going to do anything." Uh, well, we, they'll basically indicate they'll do they'll go to any step to sabotage um, the outcome of the road and undermine it. And another um, aspect is. Um, is that if um, the plebiscite fails, um, the, the Liberal government has implied that, or it's, um, Scott Morrison has implied that it's going to be completely taken off the agenda and we shouldn't speak of it again if the plebiscite were to fail. <laughs> well, that, that, I think that's wishful thinking on Scott Morrison's part. <laughs> I, I don't think the go- it's just the government that determines the agenda. And I think the queer community over the past 10 years have has demonstrated that by persistently putting this on the agenda. It's us who've got this on the agenda. They, the government would have liked us to have just forgotten that they about that they um, yeah, banned our right to marry in 2004. But we, we haven't forgotten. We just keep coming back. And we, we are just going to keep coming back, no matter what. We, we, we're going to win our right to marry. And, um, yeah, sorry, what was the question? No, it's okay. It's just there was more of a comment in your response to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's almost like they are wishing the queer community away. It doesn't work like that. It's like any other minority, you know, any other uh, group that is considered a minority. You can't wish them to disappear. It doesn't work like that. And you know, you've got to address yeah, yeah. the issue. You need to deal with it in a way that is um, just. That's uh, within the human rights legislations and practices, um, and I, I for, for the life of me, I, you know, it's, as an individual, I cannot understand what is it that bothers these people so much about the queer community. Why can't they just treat them as human beings? Just, just getting down to just basic stuff. I'm not talking about mm. politics here. It's, it, it always has fascinated me that this obsession with who sleeps who, mm. you know. Indeed. <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah. it's 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 I I just yeah. don't get it, you know. The 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 I I I think we need a psychological analysis of all these people who are anti-gay. I really do. We mm. should um, discuss it a bit more because they have got a fundamental problem. Mm. You know, we don't tell them 
who they should sleep with. Why are telling? Why are they telling the communities who sleep with? You know who they choose, um, how and where and what they should do. I, I find the whole thing really, really very invasive of privacy mm. and uh, in such a breach of uh, human rights, um, you know, laws and and and. and regulations, everything around the world. And yet there's this discomfort at a personal level for these people. And it's, it's basically, I guess, instilled in them by industrial nations because prior to industrialization, according to many histories I've read, that wasn't a problem. Mm. It's only after so-called modern society came into being there has been this issue. They never had this problem. And I was reading an article by... Um, Kavita Krishnan, I think it was, from India, and she was saying that prior to colonization, even the Muslim countries didn't have a problem with um, gay issues. There wasn't a problem, in, and, and she named five countries that had not been colonized, and till today, they, they, you know, gay, being gay is not an issue. They're treated equally as anybody else in, this, in the community. Yeah. I guess um, to change um, the to- well, the topic is still on LGBT rights, but there's been... Um, uh, a propaganda kind of one of the very highly politicised issues is has been from that's come from the Labour gov, um, Liberal government, not um, Liberal Party, has been um, this whole um, safe schools and mm-hmm. um, they've been passing around a particularly um, heinous um, propaganda kind of sheet, um, basically attacking the Greens and Liberals for supporting um, safe schools. Labour, not Liberals, Labour. Lib- no, no, Liberals has been attacking Labor and yeah, Greens. Oh, that's, that's pro- what you said. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, that's okay. He said something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, oh, I might have said some. I might have made a few You got caught out. <laughs> right. So, yes, Lib- um, Liberal government um, has been sort of releasing these propaganda kind of leaflets into people's letterboxes, basically attacking safe schools. And despite the fact that in Victoria, um, safe schools has been committed to funding by the state government of Daniel Andrews, it's still um, a, a, a big struggle in, I guess, um, WA and Sydney and I want to ask you, you know, how is, you know, how is kind of like, you know, the safe schools kind of campaign for safe schools is going, um, is going and sort of, you know, what are, what is, what are the sort of steps being taken to sort of counter this sort of propaganda, um, war from the Liberal government? Mm. Well, the, the campaign for safe schools has been very impressive. Yeah, I think especially in Melbourne where what was it, 3,000 people were mobilised when the federal government announced its recommendations and then um, yeah, the, the state government stepped in and um, guaranteed the, fu- the funding. So that was kind of, yeah, th- that kind of got it in Victoria. But it, it, elsewhere in the country, in WA, we've had some really good rallies, just, yeah, very, very broad alliance across the whole queer community. Pr- pretty much every organisation in Perth has come out in support of this safe schools coalition and yeah we formed a new campaign group called save safe schools wa mm-hmm. and we've had a series of really great rallies and yeah the the a really good team of people and yeah some really excellent young people really excellent high school students coming forward but again um yeah, how this is, how this pans out. We we need to know what terrain we're fighting on. We need to know who's going to win the election before um, to know what to do next. Mm, on yeah. that note, we shall round up the interview for Rita, if you don't mind. 
Thank you for being available this time of the morning. Mm. Very kind of you to wake up at five, was it five o'clock in Perth or something. Yeah, yeah quarter past five. <laughs> oh, you poor darling. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Anyway, Thank you. Uh, we'll talk to you another time. Thanks yeah. so much. Thanks bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Okay, we are going to have some news in a minute. But before that, once again, a reminder for um, 3TR's fundraising. We need money to keep, uh, or to stay on air, basically. So for all those people who missed out on contributing during the um, Radiothon, please uh, do feel free to contact us at 94198377 to make a contribution, or you can go online and um, also make a donation. Um, you can come down to 3CR if you want um, to make a donation. As you probably have heard many times, it's um, tax deductible. Any any contribution over $2 is tax deductible. So, okay, we're going to go on to more news, international news this yes, time. Yes, 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 indeed. Well... In the in over, over in the over in the UK, we've uh, last last uh, couple of weeks we've we've been seeing uh, an increasingly escalating political situation. <laughs> so uh, just just to put it mildly, following the uh, the Brexit vote or you know the vote uh, for uh, for the United Kingdom to leave the Europe to, to leave the European Union. And I thought I would actually sum up uh, some of the main ev- events that have taken place up to the point so far. So far, so so far, what we've seen is that we've seen this uh, a huge wave of xenophobia and uh, racist racist attacks against uh, ethnic and religious minorities in uh, in the UK. Uh, particularly, attacks one of the biggest, actually one of the biggest communities that has come under attack by. Uh, uh, by the by the by the, by the uh, far right in Britain has actually been the Polish community, and with a lot of instances of the uh, the Polish community centres being, uh, you know, sort of uh, in, uh, invaded, broken into, or burned down, and and Polish um, individuals are bit, beaten up on the streets, or you know, told to go back home to go back home to go back home to their country, similar to the others there. Um, that was one. That's uh, that, that was one event. Then we have seen the um, then uh, with regards to the main the, the, well, what has happened to, to the main to the main major political parties. Well, the, uh, well, the <laughs> Prime Minister David yes. Cameron, the, uh, pri- the former well, not, well now, well, has he hasn't gone yet. He's gone yet. Oh yeah, well, he'll be gone in two months. <laughs> <laughs> The uh, future, uh, well, the soon-to-be-departed uh, <laughs> Prime Minister, yes. uh, David, uh, David, David Cameron, has basically, or oh, he's basically thrown the Tory Party into a terminal crisis. Since now they, uh, well, they basically will have to, they will basically have to choose a leader uh, among, among amongst uh, themselves who would somehow be able to. Uh, uh, pull together the uh, the pro Brexit and the pro rem- uh, the pro Leave and the pro Remain wings of the mm. of the, uh, of, well, the, of the party. A, a, race, a very recent development just happened last night, Indeed. as I read in the news. Is um, a very good one. Um, Boris Johnson has dropped out of the leader race, and for first listeners, um, Boris Johnson were, is a mayor in. No, he was okay. No, uh, Boris Johnson was was mayor of London for uh, int- uh, until um, from 2008 till 2016. Yep, and um, he was 
one of the main sort of Tory campaigns um, for a Leave vote, um, and actually he used a lot of you know populist kind of rhetoric um, to kind of like push forward that kind of campaign. Like you basically you know if Britain left the European Union, we'll be able to take control and we'll be able to bring yes. those three hundred million pounds that we yes. send to the European Union. We'll be able to go to the NHS. Exactly. And but he's actually dropped out of the leadership race, so yes. he won't be coward. running for a lead. What a coward. Um, <laughs> it, there's been some commentary that the reason um, that Boris Johnson actually didn't really have a plan, like he just yeah. sort of said a lot of crap and um, in in favour of the leave vote, yes. and now that he, the fact that he actually won the vote, he was like actually a bit of a shock to him. Yes. Um, yes. So he wasn't... He was shocked into silence, uh, basically. Yes. And he wasn't actually... He, uh, it's sort of like he didn't actually expect it to happen, but it happened, and now he had no idea. I don't idea. think anybody did, Jacob. <laughs> no. That's a problem. Well, yeah. Well, no, uh, you kind of felt it, uh, felt, felt it coming through years of uh, racist propaganda put up by the Murdoch press in the UK. I think it was... Uh, you clearly see it coming. But this brings me this brings me to the next party, and that's uh, the other party that was leading the Leave vote. That's the UKIP. Uh, oh, God, yes. And Nigel Farage, who actually who received a very, very frosty... Welcome to say, say the least in the European yes. Union when he arrived uh, there, there in Brussels. Um, and I think I think we should, at this point we need to point out that uh, the idea of leaving the European Union itself yeah, itself is actually not a bad. It's not. It's not. It it's is not racist. It's not. <laughs> it's, it is not a racist the decision to no. base, right? It's no. not racist or right wing or anything or anything that of that sort. Leaving the leaving the European Union is actually like well. Be, uh, it's a, new, it's a neoliberal uh, agenda, exactly, that one. Exa- exa- exactly. Well, the, the European Union, yes. not, not leaving it. So, and there have been, and there has actually has been a left-wing campaign for for an exit, which I'll get to uh, in a moment there. But yeah. <coughs> so the thing yeah. is, um, you know, the European Union itself has been around forty years, and it was a neoliberal agenda. It's a bit exactly. like the TPP. It mm. was actually economic. Um, Congo. A single market, a single, a single free, exactly. free neoliberal, neoliberal market, That's and, it was, right. and it was and it was founded by the, uh, you know, by by the heads of the biggest, you know, uh, uh, metal, coal, and uh, consumer goods heads uh, and and their political representatives mm-hmm. who formed the European Commission and the Council and the Council of Ministers. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So th- there and are different elements to it as well. So exactly. I'm just we're going to interview later on with somebody about yes, this. Yes, indeed, straight but after straight, straight yeah. after this. But shall we move on to the what's happening in Europe as, as, as such as well? So that that's a taste of, mm. of um, what's happening in, uh, with the Brexit thing and that mm. the, so many different aspects to it that we can't capture at the moment. Yes. Maybe after the, yes. the interview we can talk a bit more. But in Spain, there's a, mm. there's another big issue because the second time, but the first elections were held on the 20th of December last year. Yes, that's it right. Didn't produce a single winner, and they had another one last Thursday. Yes. Again, it didn't produce a single winner. Dennis, do you want to put in the sure. details? Sure. Yeah, it was actually quite a surprising result in this uh, in this election where. Um, well, the, the well, the ruling right-wing party, uh, the the the, uh, the popular party, actually actually managed to increase its vote mm. since the la- since the last election. It actually gained a couple a couple more seats. Um, the uh, PSOE, which is kind of the, uh, the Spanish version of the Labour Party, have lost uh, lost a few seats. The left-wing coalition, Unidos Podemos, that we've been talking about on the show last few weeks, actually like, ha- maintained the same number of seats, which was the biggest surprise because they were expected to win mm. ni- uh, 
And there was expected to win at least 90 seats, and they only ended up with 71, which was yeah, very disappointing. It was, it was very disappointing and actually sets things back a lot. Um, then there was this, the sort of the neoliberal hipster party called the Citizens that actually suffered, uh, suffered <laughs> a blow to themselves. Uh, uh, probably, probably at the expense of the, the, the main right-wing party. So their votes went to the, across. Yeah, just, just a question, actually. Just from my reading of um, the results, it appeared that the equivalent to the Labour Party yes. and um, the radical left Podemos, and, yes. um, if you combine their vote, um, that would mean they would have a majority. Wouldn't that no, mean? Uh, no. No, 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 it no. doesn't. If, if they had, if, if, if they did, w- if they had won the l- results we were predicted, then yes, they would have formed. But no. no. Uh, so now, uh, so it's, it seems that the uh, like left of centre government or social democratic government, like a, prop, a proper, or, or should we say an anti-austerity government, is for the moment quite unlikely mm. in Spain. But yeah. this also means this also means that the main right-wing party would actually st- would also really struggle to form governments. Yeah, again, the understatement. That's exactly. the biggest problem. Well, exactly. I guess in in some cases, just going from my ex- um, in Australia, the fact that a party like Podemos has 70 seats actually seems to be Pretty good, relatively yes. speaking. But it's not as good as they not as good as not as good as they expected. It's yes. not good enough to form a government. That's the biggest problem at the moment. And yes. you know, I'm sure they're left examining what the hell went on. Mm. So mm. the right wing, mm. for that matter. But let's go on to the other one, which is France, um, where enormous strikes have been taking place. And um, that is this is this is a pattern that's developing in the EU again within mm. that that mm. European mm-hmm. um, um, you know yes. block. You, you, you've had Greece that go, gone through enormous um, austerity measures and, and terrible experiences, and now you've got France up in arms. And uh, the, this, this, this sort of austerity measures has, has hit most of the European countries within mm. the EU, EU. And yet this, what we call the neoliberal agenda, is wanting to march ahead. And the main, main beneficiary from the EU as a trading bloc is, is Germany, so to speak. Or the German working, not the working class, the German ruling class is the mm-hmm. one that's, been, I think we've got to be very specific about that. So in France, there have been worker strikes, and, and it, it hardly made the news, except for a few bits and pieces here and there. What have we got the in best, the paper well, about the best, France? Well, hold on, well, well actually, I'll, well, <laughs> the most amazing, uh, well, the most amazing development. The most amazing development about France has actually been that uh, there was an article published by the Daily Torygraph uh, that said that actually um, that actually quoted a lot of the you know the police chiefs in in Paris to uh, to basically begging the protesters to sp- please stop protesting because they were <laughs> so tired and, and exhausted. Very polite. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, no, yes, indeed. But no, it's it's really it really is ongoing. Uh, uh, yes, there, but, uh, the, the, but I think actually the biggest upsets, one of the biggest upsets that I've, that I've seen about the, um, um, uh, about the strikes in France is that there hasn't actually, uh, they haven't actually translated into any political action. No, there, there hasn't actually, no, no single political party or confederation actually has actually managed to lead the strikes or, or be able, or, or be able to turn the strikes from social action into political action in the upcoming in the upcoming elections there. I guess maybe just my kind of like perspective, just generally, a general kind of comment I have about Europe is um, they, I guess there's a kind of real kind of importance of actually, you know, the left actually creating this, forming that kind of leadership to lead those kind of struggles because right now the right, the far right are the mm-hmm. ones that seem to have the lead, 
the political legitimacy and the leadership, for example, they almost won, as we spoke about in a previous show, in Austria, they almost won an election. Um, yes. And there's also, um, in France, um, I guess, um, uh, the, the one of the shrubbling kind of implications of the Brexit, um, Brexit, even though Brexit is going to have a lot of interesting kind of implications all around for both the left and right, um, but this has got to be sort of up for the left to kind of organise against this is that um, a far, the far right group National Front um, are also kind mm. of um, uh, you know calling for their own kind of referendum uh, I've heard a comment that they're the European Union sorry the European Union yeah, and course, I guess of course. Yeah, the European Union is a corrupt institution um, and it's actually not a particularly bad idea but what needs to happen is the left actually exactly. needs to lead the struggle against leave, uh, right. that struggle well, uh, not so much against leaving the European Union but creating an alternative social Europe this is what Jeremy Corbyn has been saying yes in the UK in the, uh, in the UK and, and just before we get to the interview uh, as well um uh, we, we, cause we haven't mentioned Jeremy Corbyn when we were talking about Britain. He, he himself has actually been facing a, uh, yes. a revolt, a revolt by the right wing, well, not even by the right wing of the Labour Party, it was actually by, just by the, uh, parliamentary members of, right wing, right wing, right wing parliament, parliamentary members in, uh, in the Westminster. Uh, who called uh, for a vote of no confidence in him because they said that his uh, campaign for Remain was lukewarm and not enthusiastic enough. I don't blame you. Why would someone be enthusiastic <laughs> about the biggest neoliberal project in the world is, beyond, is really beyond me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in, in response, this is a very positive thing, in response, um, all of these people have mobilised in support of Corbyn. Yes. Um, yeah. momentum, momentum has been the biggest uh, yeah. force. And then there's been a petition um, there's been petitions for around where to have like hundreds of thousands of signatures that we wrote Labour Party con- members in, in, in confidence of Jeremy Corbyn and mm-hmm. of course um, there was also another recent status by um, John um, McDonald that yeah. I think around 30,000 50,000 60,000 60,000 people have joined the Labour Party in the last in week. the last week and that is solely in support of Jeremy Corbyn. I'd like to, yeah, I'd like to point and, out again, 60,000 in a week. Just I want to make a, wow. a, a bit of a quick comment is there's been this sort of comment that the, or the far left is, um, you know, taking over the Labour Party, but you know, <laughs> 60,000 people, that is bigger than the far left in, the, in, in Britain. Like, and, and the yes. interesting about, yes. about um, the Labour Party in, in Britain is that the parliamentary party does not elect its leader. It's the membership that elects a leader. That's right. So that therefore, Jeremy Corbyn is standing strong for the moment. Mm-hmm. So we'll see mm-hmm. how it all sort of unravels. Indeed. Well, the interview, the interview that we prepared uh, for you this morning is uh, with uh, with a. Uh, it's with a, with a comrade from London. He is a, a, com- a comrade who is who, well. He's, he is on the uh, uh, he's a member of the National Committee of Momentum, which is a grassroots network of Labour Party activists who support Jeremy Corbyn. And he'll just he will t- he'll explain to us uh, the well. It will explain us the, some background behind uh, campaign for Brexit, but also what is hap- what is taking place at the moment with the leadership uh, campaign and you know organising anti austerity. Okay, Movement just before Britain. I put the, the interview on, very quickly, yeah, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to 3CR, and this is Friday Breakfast and Green Left Radio. And we're going to listen to an interview with uh, mem- uh, mem- uh, one of the leaders of Momentum, who's a gratis organization in the UK, on the issue of Brexit. So here we go. We have with us now yep. Ben Grinitsky, 
a member of the National Committee of Marentum, which is a grassroots network of Labour Party members who support the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. Ben is joining us from London, I believe. Hello, Ben. Hi, how are you? Oh, fantastic. Now, Ben, we've seen this um, situation unraveling before our eyes in, Brit- in Britain so rapidly. Um, but before we get it in. Before we get into too much detail, uh, could you briefly tell us uh, about the Remain campaign and particularly Jeremy Corbyn's uh, role in it? Yeah, the Remain campaign was led uh, predominantly actually by uh, the Conservative Party, but obviously the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership officially supported uh, a Remain vote. Corbyn himself, I think, handled handled the situation well because he refused to share a platform with David Cameron or any other conservative uh, campaigners because obviously that would have discredited uh, the the kind of uh, ideas that Corbyn was putting forward in the eyes of Labour voters. So he uh, made a kind of argument for an internationalist position and, and this kind of thing um, and in defence of the rights of, of workers and so on. Having said that, um, in my opinion, Corbyn was actually uh, is, is not a big supporter of the European Union. He recognises it for what it is, which is uh, an institution with austerity written into its constitution and an institution which does um, does uh, attack migrants, basically, and attacks refugees who are trying to, to, to make a better life for themselves. And so his campaigning for a Remain vote always suffered from that um, that limitation, and actually, in my opinion, uh, he found himself forced by the right wing of the Labour Party into campaigning for something which he didn't actually uh, particularly believe in very strongly. Uh, and and so you saw, for example, in interviews, he gave the European Union seven out of ten uh, for its efforts and this sort of thing. Uh, so he's not he, he he campaigned for the Remain vote on a on a, as progressive a basis as it was possible to do. Yes. But the European Union is not a progressive institution. Yes, yes. And um, how would the trade unions involved in this campaign? Because I mean, from my understanding, uh, there were some unions who supported um, Leap campaign and there were some who, who supported uh, Remain campaign. That's right. Unite, the biggest union uh, in the UK, supported a Remain vote. But in my opinion, they did so very badly. The leadership of Unite is to blame for that, I think. They made the argument that we have to support the Remain vote to protect workers' rights. Uh, but as far as I can see, we've had uh, membership of the European Union in Britain for many years. Over the last few years, there have been massive attacks on workers' rights. And as far as I can tell, the thing that really protects workers' rights is working-class struggle, it's union struggle, industrial action and so on. It's not relying on an institution like the European Union to do that. So I was disappointed with the, with the Remain campaign on the part of unions like Unite. But then on the other side, you had the RMT, uh, which is a, a very left union, and they were campaigning for a leave vote. Um, and they made some uh, good arguments. They made a kind of left-wing argument for, for leave, pointing out the undemocratic uh, and capitalist nature of the European Union. But uh, but they were they were drowned out basically. The the Leave campaign was completely dominated by the most reactionary and most right wing elements of the Conservative Party, and that really drowned out the kind of uh, message that the RMT were putting forward. They were they were very isolated as a result. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. And uh, Jeremy Corbyn himself uh, has actually been facing with a, with a coup from the right-wing faction of the Leo Party as, uh, what do you say, as a consequence of the loss, lo- uh, the loss of the Remain uh, campaign in the referendum. Uh, what is the situation uh, at the moment? And could you uh, explain uh, us more about um, you know, the, the coup and the details? Yeah, well, uh, I'd say, first of all, that whilst the referendum result has been the trigger for this coup attempt, it's not the underlying reason for it. The reason that this is happening is that there is a wing of the Labour Party who has, ever since Corbyn's election, been irreconcilably opposed to his ideas. And they will do anything, no matter what the excuse, they will do anything to, to remove him. So whilst this is the trigger, it's not the, the fundamental cause. Um, <clears throat> but what's been happening is that uh, yesterday, uh, a number, around a dozen um, members of Corbyn's shadow cabinet resigned, that's his front bench team, and the resignations have continued today, including uh, a statement, not a resignation, but a statement from the, the deputy leader of the Labour Party, asking Corbyn to consider his position. Um, and, uh, and this is all being done, basically, with the aim of putting sufficient pressure on Corbyn to resign. There is also a motion of no confidence being put uh, by to the Parliamentary Labour Party, that is, the, MP, the Labour MPs, uh, by two right-wing members of the party. That's being discussed in the next couple of days and voted on the next couple of days. Um, and the aim of all that on its own has no constitutional standing in the Labour Party, but the aim of all this is basically to destabilise Corbyn, undermine him as much as possible, refuse to work with him on questions of policy. And uh, unsurprisingly, this has provoked enormous anger amongst the rank and file of the Labour yeah, Party, because, the grassroots yeah, members, because the, the uh, elected yeah, yeah, because uh, from what I understand, uh, Jeremy Corbyn actually has the, one of the biggest, if not the biggest mandate from the Labour Party membership to be, the, to be the leader of the party. That's right. Not just in uh, not just in this particular leadership election, but in the whole history of the Labour Party, in the whole history of any political party, he has the biggest mandate of any leader. Mm-hmm. And what has been the kind of response of the of the momentum? Actually, actually, could you briefly tell us about the momentum? Because some some of listeners might not know much about it. Yeah, it was set up as basically the um, continuation of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership election campaign. So there was a campaign team for that who did excellent work and built a very big campaign around Jeremy's um, uh, election. Uh, after he was elected, this then formed itself into momentum. Um, with local branches and regional structures and, and national structures. Uh, the aim of it is to uh, defend Jeremy Corbyn and fight for his ideas, um, fight for socialist uh, policies in the Labour Party, basically. Of course. And what do you think uh, will be the response of the trade unions and the austerity movement in this new post-Brexit Britain? Well, already uh, in relation to the situation in the Labour Party, the trade unions have all come out in support of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. The trade union leaders have all done that. And Momentum is organising, they're organising a demonstration outside uh, Parliament tonight in support of Jeremy Corbyn. And local activists will be pushing resolutions through their local Labour Party branches in support of Corbyn. And I think more broadly than that, uh, there is now very much a mood amongst uh, rank and file trade union members, Labour Party members, and so on, for the deselection, the removal of 
these Labour MPs who are openly sabotaging the Labour Party. Uh, and the reason for that is what, what you can see now is a Conservative Party completely in crisis, the government completely in crisis, with no direction and no clear leadership. It's the perfect opportunity to bring down this government, which has imposed austerity on millions of people, and elect a, a strong socialist Labour leader into number 10 Downing Street. But, uh, but the, uh, the right wing of the Labour Party, they're more concerned with bringing down the elected party leader than they are with bringing down the Tories. So as far as I can see, the trade union movement, what it needs to do is, uh, is one, uh, unite around Corbyn and kick the Blairites out of the party. And, uh, and two, call a general strike with the aim of bringing down the government, forcing a new election and on that basis electing a Corbyn government into power. Um, I do have my doubt. I, I'm very um, I'm optimistic that that is perfectly possible, and I'm also pleased that the trade union leaders have openly already come out in support of Jeremy Corbyn. But I am uh, concerned, based on the experience of the last few years, that the trade union leaders uh, may not step up to this uh, to this challenge on their own. And so I think it's very important that grassroots members of trade unions and the Labour Party put the pressure on their leaders to take this particular line of attack. Yes. And so in the absence of uh, this sort of action happening, I think, from my, my understanding, one of the strongest possibilities um, of, this, of this whole Brexit debacle is that uh, Britain will be faced with the Prime Ministership of Boris Johnson, and with that, most with that, and with the crisis, with the economic crisis as a result of the exit from the European Union, a new and even harsher round of austerity of austerity measures against the working class as well. Yeah, I mean that is uh, that's perfectly possible as well. Um, I think whichever uh, whichever way the referendum result had gone. If we still had David Cameron as a Prime Minister, if we get Boris Johnson as a Prime Minister, or any Tory of any kind, then we will still have uh, austerity. And actually, I'd go further and say it's not just a question of uh, ideologically driven cuts, which the Tories are pushing through. I'd say that anyone, and this goes for the right wing of the Labour, of the Labour Party as well, anyone who is, is wedded to capitalism will find themselves in a position where they're forcing through austerity cuts. Austerity is the inevitable product of capitalism in crisis. And this is why it's so important to, to, to unite around Corbyn, because, uh, because he, is, he has the best opportunity, or he's the most likely to actually break uh, with capitalism and, and force, a, uh, force a debate over, the, over what, kind of, what socialism would look like and how we, can, how we can take that forward. So, yes, I think there is a big possibility that, uh, that Boris Johnson and, and, and others could force through uh, brutal austerity cuts. And it will be up to the trade union movement and the labour movement to respond to that by uh, by breaking with capitalism. Mm, absolutely. Just a few, few final comments, uh, Ben. Um, the the president of the European Parliament has also declared that he wants Britain out of the EU as soon as possible, and they're certainly hurrying up with the separation of the uh, between, between the states. Um, do you think do you think that the European Union is perhaps trying to make an example of Britain, similar to what it did to Greece, of what happens when a, a, a country tries to leave the zone? I think that that is a big factor in their calculations, because they'll be looking at a country like France, 
where the protests at the moment are against the labour law that is being pushed through by the European Union and inevitably, therefore, is causing a lot of resentment by the French working class against the European Union. They'll be looking at that and saying, if we allow a referendum in France, which, of course, Marine Le Pen is calling for, and France votes to leave the European Union, then that's an even more serious situation. And there are other countries as well that are talking about this. So, yes, they'll be very worried about that, and one way they think they can combat it will be to make things very difficult for Britain. However, at the same time, the countervailing factor is that Britain is an important trading partner of the uh, you know, British capitalists, are an important trading partner for the British, uh, for the European capitalists. And one thing the market takes is instability and a very vicious campaign to, to damage the British economy on the part of the European Union is likely to destabilize the world economy even more. And so they'll be wanting to avoid that sort of situation as well. Right. Well, Ben, thank you so much uh, for, uh, for, for the talk today. It's been, it's been incredibly enlightening for, uh, for listeners here at Tricia. Okay, thank you very much. We've just we've just finished an interview with Ben Gunietsky from uh, Momentum over in Britain, talking about um, the campaign. The, well, basically the, the the campaign to fight off uh, the right wing coup against uh, popular left wing leader Jeremy Corbyn in the Labour Party. Yep. Okay, now we have on the line uh, Miranda Stewart, who is a professor. Oh, she's a, she's a professor, and she's a director of the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute at the ANU. And we're going to talk tax. Good morning, Miranda. Good morning. And welcome to 3CN. Thank you for um, agreeing to talk to us. We are going to discuss tax and the elections. Uh, yes, you've got some queries about that? Yes, yes. Um, the, the proposals about... Um, the reduction in tax for small companies has been a point of discussion. Just wanted, uh, you, if you wanted to comment on that policy as such. Uh, well, the Liberal National Coalition, uh, currently in government, of course, have uh, put a proposal to cut company tax. Uh, they have this 10-year plan, actually, 10-year plan for jobs and growth, as they call it, uh, where uh, over the long run, they will cut the company tax rate for all companies uh, of any size uh, so that by uh, 2026, all companies would, under that plan, uh, face a, a tax rate of 25% instead of 30%. Um, but the way they're going to do that is to phase it in over the 10-year period. So what they propose over the next three or four years, basically the next election cycle, uh, is uh, to gradually uh, lower the rate uh, for smaller sized companies and then increase the size. So at the moment, the rate for companies under 2 million turnover, uh, that's not profit, that's just turnover, is 28.5%. It was lowered a year ago. Uh, so they're proposing to uh, extend that to companies with turnover of 10 million uh, and then 50 million, 100 million, and then they're going to actually start uh, lowering the rate gradually down to 27 uh, and then to 25. Wow, that is very progressive, isn't it? Um, in, in your experience, this way of ta um, manipulating um, taxpayer money uh, through tax to improve the economy and growth, has there been um, evidence of uh, improvement in the economy, so to speak, through the strategy? Well, I think you have to think about Australia's tax system in context of what happens in the rest of the world. Uh, you know, we have a fairly open economy 
these days. Uh, it's not uh, protectionist or closed. We have free-flowing uh, investment and, and trade or very largely free-flowing. Uh, and so what, what matters is the, the impact of uh, company tax on investment decisions. And governments do think of the tax system and especially taxes on business or enterprise as a part of their kind of economic policy, if you like, uh, as well as a way of raising revenue. Um, Australia's company tax rate has been 30% now uh, for quite a long time, uh, since 2000. Um, it, compared to other countries, it's actually relatively high. Uh, the US has a higher com nominal company tax rate of 35%. I guess Japan has 33%, uh, but um, most other countries and countries in our region especially have lower company tax rates than Australia. Uh, and there is an argument, I guess one of the arguments being used for the policy, uh, that uh, Australia relies on uh, foreign investment. Uh, we're a net capital importing country. Uh, and so that we, we may be competing for foreign investment. And the company tax rate is seen as one lever to, to make Australia more attractive. All right, I have a, um, a question um, basically around um, the issue of tax avoidance. Um, and from my understanding, from reading the budget, um, or a free major, or well, two major parties and the Greens all have a kind of policy on how to address this question of tax avoidance, especially in light of the Padma papers. And I want to interested in hearing your comment on um, that. So you're particularly interested, I guess, uh, in tax avoidance of, of corporations then? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, because that, that was, yeah, that was the main, main focus, I guess, of most of the party policies recently. Uh, and uh, as you say, there were measures in the budget. Um, so multinational corporations, so I, I said that we compete for capital investment, um, because, because multinationals have the ability to access to, to move uh, capital around and to access the legal systems and the, and the nations really are all around the world, including tax havens, low-tax countries, uh, they can uh, profit shift or what we call base erode, erode the, the, the company tax base here in Australia by making payments offshore to related companies. Um, so, so the acronym or the name we give to that is base erosion and profit shifting. It gets called BEPS for short. I'm not sure if you've come across that phrase. Uh, and the OECD and a number of governments, including Australia, have uh, expressed concerns about that uh, and are seeking to protect the company tax base um, by, uh, by enacting some anti-avoidance rule. So, for example, the large corporations like Google, uh, most of their value is in intangible assets, intellectual property, marketing and sales, financial type assets. Uh, and uh, people can access it from anywhere in the world. It's this kind of digital uh, economy. It's very difficult to apply our traditional tax rules uh, to make sure that uh, we, we capture some of that global value uh, in taxes in Australia. Uh, they, they don't have a business presence in Australia. And so we've enacted a, an anti-avoidance rule that would deem Google to have uh, a business presence in Australia uh, to the extent that they, they make some sales here. Yeah, and um, just... So all parties, so Joe, sorry, just to finish up there, yes, all parties, uh, we, we seem to have bipartisan support for that. Uh, some of the Greens, for example, would like to go further. Uh, but actually both the ALP and the LNP have a number of measures that are intended to broaden 
uh, and protect the, the corporate tax base. Mm. The, the, this tax uh, cutting exercise, actually Paul Keating did, did it in the, um, I think, 80s, if I remember correctly. Um, has, has, is there any evidence that such tax cutting actually improves investment overall in the country? Uh, you're right that uh, Keating did it in the 80s, uh, and then it was uh, the, the, the company tax rate. Actually, for a while, the company tax rate was, was the same as the personal income tax rate, 49%. Uh, but it was dropped very quickly under Keating uh, after that and then also under John Howard uh, from 36 to 30. Um, you asked a very good question and the answer is that it's very difficult to find empirical evidence that actually proves the connection uh, between a lower company tax rate and more investment. Um, that doesn't mean it doesn't happen, okay? So uh, I, I guess... Uh, one of the one of the challenges with this debate, I think, for the public uh, and actually for even for the po- politicians, uh, is working out um, what evidence is there uh, and uh, can model can the economic model tell us what we need to know about the company tax? Um, there's usually a lot else going on in the economy. So, for example, we did cut the company tax rate from 36% to 30% uh, in the in 2000. Um, uh, it, we've had a we had a boom period, right? We had ten years of, of very substantial economic growth. Um, was that caused by the company tax cut? I mean, surely the answer is is probably no. Or that that, that was just one small factor in a, in in what was essentially a very big commodities boom that we had. So it's very hard to unpack the empirical evidence. Uh, but there is evidence that corporations do respond to tax rates. There's quite a lot of evidence about that and do do tax planning. And, of course, we can observe what happens elsewhere in the world uh, and what they're doing with their company taxes. Yeah. Um, the, the other question I wanted to ask is, um, do you, um, in, in, in your you know expertise, found that um, there's generally support from the general population for these sort of measures that tax, uh, cutting taxes to big companies? Um, I'm not sure if there is general support. Um, as you've observed, different governments, Labour governments and Conservative governments, have uh, have cut the company tax rate in the past, uh, and, and, and I don't think that that has led that has been a cause of them losing office you know so it's not highly political in that way although it's on the front pages for this election um i think that the public is has lost trust in large corporations in australia if they ever had uh, much trust uh and in particular that's because of panama papers as you've pointed out and multinational tax avoidance and that's a real problem for for large business they really uh, they have start, some large corporations have now started to publicly report all of their taxes uh, and to explain their tax position to the public um, and um, being required now of the large mining companies because they are, uh, we are signing up extractive industry transparency initiatives. And I think that's really important uh, to communicate that to the public. But I guess the very important thing for people to remember is that taxes, uh, companies are not people. Right? Companies cannot bear tax. They cannot bear the burden of tax. Individuals ultimately bear the burden of tax or the benefit of government activity. Uh, and so uh, a company is just a legal fiction, right? It's a nexus of contracts. 
Uh, and, and so who, who bears the company tax? Uh, the Treasury argues, and, and they do this really kind of with their, the goal of improving national well-being for Australians, that quite a lot of Australian company tax is borne by Australian workers uh, indirectly because of uh, lower foreign investment. Now, that's highly disputed, uh, but I guess the question is, uh, how can we design a system that just collects that tax through that legal entity, but for the benefit of the well-being of all of us? Mm. Interesting point, because um, in the industrial system, the companies are represented as people, and uh, it's a slightly uh, different variation from the way you presented it. it. So they seem to have different way of defining a company depending on which legal um, you know, entity they, they enter into for whatever purpose. Um, so that's an interesting one. But lastly, before we let you go, it's, um, I just wanted to get your comments on this, this proposal and discussion around the increase of GST. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's always an unpopular thing, and rightly so, because always every, the whole, you know, poor people, rich people, regardless of who, what um, your earnings are, you end up paying the same tax, especially when you go and buy commodities in, in the uh, markets and so on. Um, what is your opinion on, on, on this uh, proposal to raise a GST? Uh, so you're quite right. The, the GST, well, at the moment, you know, our flat rate is 10%. Uh, we have a lot of exemptions from the GST. So a lot of, a lot of goods and services are not taxed. Um, fresh food, uh, as people know, education, health, water and sewage services are not taxed. Um, financial services are taxed uh, lower for administrative reasons, really. So uh, w- that means that if, uh, as you say, a rich person goes out and buys a washing machine or a poor person goes out and buys a washing machine, they both pay 10% GST on that same purchase. Uh, and relatively to the income of that person or the household, uh, the, the tax uh, is, is, seems uh, more substantial for the poor person, even though it's the same rate that applies. So I guess the question is what we call a regressive tax. Mm. However, it's also an important revenue raiser for the country, right? And and government is valuable for poor people. uh, And funding government adequately is really important to provide public goods and services, social welfare, health, education, transport, infrastructure, and so on. And so the question is what is the best way to raise revenue to fund government? Uh, and uh, we always should have a, a highly a progressive personal income tax. That's important. But most countries around the world that have substantial public spending and public welfare rely more heavily on consumption tax than we do. So our GST, the rate is relatively low compared to many other countries, and the base, the, the consumption that is taxed, is less than in many other countries. And that means we're not raising as much revenue from that source uh, as, we, as we could. So the question is overall design. Should we raise the GST somewhat? Uh, but we would need to make sure we compensate low-income earners uh, appropriately as well. Mm. Okay, thank you so much, Miranda, for being available this time of no. the morning for interview. And, <laughs> Thanks uh, for the invitation. And it's, it's, an, it's an informative uh, discussion. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Okay, we're back to the program um, we move on to more news and announcements yes indeed Hi, it's 
Well, Dennis will have the first one because I just asked him to see if he can get yeah. it. <laughs> um, so, uh, so uh, as as we may have mentioned on the previous shows, the uh, workers at Carlton United Breweries are currently fighting against attempts by the managements over at the Abbotsford Abbotsford Brewery to sack them and then rehire them or with a or with a uh, with a something like sixty-five percent pay cut. That's right. If you can if you can believe that, but workers uh, under under the leadership and in the with the support of the Electrical Trades Union and the AMWU have um, have united uh, in the community picket and protest and are organizing a solidarity barbecue on surprisingly (laughs) US Independence Day (laughs) July 4th (laughs) it's a 35% rich cut they're going to sack them and then rehire them for 65% of the original pay that's that's what they're fighting that's That's right come uh, come down to the uh, Southampton Chris Abbotsford to the Carlton United Breweries there and 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 support the uh, the striking workers. It's on July fourth at twelve p.m. South Hampton Crest, Abbotsford, Victoria. Okay, I guess I'll move on to the next um, next kind of series of events um, on the activist calendar. The the twenty four hour um, protest for public housing on Eighteenth Bendigo Street is still going. Um, yes, and, and they need hap- their support. Yes, and they need support and donations. I imagine it's going actually going to be a big political issue after these federal elections are over because it's probably been kept into the limelight because of the federal elections. Like, they're not going to take... The state government won't take any response to it until after that. Um, And also, there will be... if you're interested, this, since this is the Green Left Weekly activist calendar, um, if you're interested in picking up the Green Left Weekly, this latest issue of the Green Left Weekly, there will be a store today um, on Flinders Street at 4 to 6 p.m. Uh, but following that, uh, um, there will be an election night party hosted by Social Alliance. Um, after polling day, she is in Brown in good company and meals and drinks available. It will be this um, Saturday, 6 p.m. at the Antonio Cultural Centre, which is at 195 Sydney Road. Um, this Sunday, there will be a rally to liberate Palestine at um, 1.30 p.m. at the State Library in Swanson Street. Excellent. Um, there will be a film uh, a film screening. Um, there will be two film screens coming up. Slow down. Slow oh, down. Sorry. There will be, fil- <laughs> uh, be two film screenings coming up. Um, a film screening, Tunnel Vision, by Ivan Hexter's documentary about the fight against the East-West Link. And the evening will be emceed by Rod Contark and screening followed by... Q&A. Where's that? Um, that? Well, I'm getting to that. They'll be, at, um, thir- <laughs> this, they'll be next Thursday at 6pm, the Bella Union at Shrades Hall on Ligon Street, Carlton South. And bookings can be made at bellaunion.com.au. The next, um, there'll be a Red Cinema, a, a fundraiser for Green Left Weekly, UK, the film UK Gold. Um, it's basically going to be a film about how... The UK and Britain is the, you know, following on from the um, discussion about tax avoidance, is the centre of tax avoidance, global tax avoidance. It's um, narrated by Dominic West and it has music by from Tom York, who's known as the um, lead singer of Radiohead, the best band of the world. <laughs> uh, Obviously a fan there, Jacob. And um, it'll be um, Friday, July 15th um, uh, at 6pm in the Resistance Centre, level 5, 401 Swanson Street, and there'll be meal from 6pm. Um, the next event uh, will be there will be on next Saturday, um, not July this Saturday, 9th. July ninth, July ninth at twelve p.m. over at st- over at State Library. There will be a rally in defense of Latin American sovereignty. 
and in particular in support of the striking teachers in Mexico, uh, in op- opposition to the coup in Brazil, in you know demanding U.S. that the United States stops intervention uh, against Venezuela, and also also in, in opposition to the TPP. Uh, both in Latin America and uh, in Australia, and finally in defense of the Mapuche indigenous uh, nations in Chile. There's so many things happening in the Latin American arena, isn't there? It's just bubbling yes, away. Indeed. Well, there, well, there has been there has been a uh, uh, well, actually, over in um, over in there have been there have been there, uh, there have been a few news items which uh, I, thought, I thought was important to mention. Some positive ones coming from Latin from Latin America. There in Chile, in, Ch- in Chile, uh, some listeners might know the famous uh, rad- radical Chilean musician and uh, sing- and singer Victor Victor Jara, uh, yes. who is who is finally getting justice uh, here in uh, in in the, for- in the 40, uh, 43 years. Uh, Victor Jara was uh, was assass- was assassinated by the Pinochet regime. Uh, in, uh, ni- 19 th- in 1973, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, and now finally the officers in charge of his ass- assassination are f- uh, have been found guilty of his, of his of his finally. of his murder. So finally, him and his family are getting at least some at least some justice uh, there. And in Brazil, in Brazil, the um, uh, the, well, well, the coup the coup plot against Dilma, uh, much actually much like the coup plot against Jeremy Corbyn. It's actually starting to really unravel and uh, unfold, uh, well, and 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 actually starting to disintegrate, um, since the uh, the Brazilian upper house, uh, the Brazilian Senate, has actually found that Dil- uh, Dilma Dilma Rousseff, the host, the president who was removed by uh, just uh, a couple a couple of months back, had well. She should basically declare, declare innocent of any of any wrongdoing. Are they going to reinstate corruption? her? Well, that's part, you know that's because kind of part of the process. Because her successor was was actually found to be worse. Exactly, exactly. And even though I think we, might, we need to point out that uh, the the government has also has been responsible for a fair share of of neoliberalism still oh, herself. Of course. But the, the, her her removal was done by the extreme, like you know, the the, the old, like the old, like the UPF. Yeah. Exactly. Well, no, I wouldn't say no, no, the, not the UPF. I'd say it would be done. It was done by someone like Tony Abbott. Oh, okay. But it was basically yeah, it was, yeah, Brazilian Brazilian Tony Abbott is now in charge, but it lo- doesn't look like he's going to be going anywhere. And finally, uh, Rousseff has actually declared that uh, she will not. Uh, apparently, um, apparently, she declared that she will not stand as president. Uh, well, you know, if she's reinstated, if, yeah. there, if there are yeah. elections, and instead, uh, Lula da Silva, who, who, who was the president, who was the president before her, has promised he is, will be the one standing in, in the elections. So we'll see what happens, we'll see what happens there. It's yeah. interesting Just a, um, one last sort of um, event plug. Um, it's not in the activist calendar, but I thought I would mention it. Um, there's going to be a big sort of student conference happening in um, Brisbane. Oh, that's right. Um, yes. The, yes. Um, the Students of Sustainability Conference, and it's going to be happening from the seventh. Um, to the 11th of um, July, um, and it'll be at um, Griffith University in Brisbane. And um, yep, it's um, it's basically going to be it's a conference organised by the Australian Students Environmental Network, but it's a very sort of broad, um, broadly organised conference. They'll have workshops from all sorts of different environmental groups. Um, they'll have lots of, a lot of focus on you know direct action, environmental campaigns. Um, there will also be speakers from the First Nations community, um, but yeah, it's a 
if you if you you know have time to come down to Brisbane, um, I definitely recommend um, come, attending the conference. And it will be um, you. There's like it costs like 110 to 200 dollars, and that includes meals for all the five days of the conference. So hang on. So this is a conference. By young people, for young people. Yeah. Uh, it is for young, it is mostly organised by young people, but it's for all ages. Like, we're, particularly, they're not, um, you know, excluding anyone from all, any old people. So, they're not, they're not being ages. No, they're not being ages. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a conference welcome that welcomes anyone, but it is mostly, or, you're right, Lali, it is mostly organised by young people. And so for the environment, the focus is environment and sustainability, yeah? Yeah, the focus is environment and sustainability. And, um, yes, you can also camp out as well. So, yeah, bring your camping gear if you're planning on attending or you can just book a hostel. Okay, yeah. cool. Any other announcements or is that it? That's, uh, in terms of upcoming events, that is pretty much it for the announcements. But we're going to move on to get some quick kind of final comments because we have like five minutes left on the show. Yes, indeed. So uh, we started, we started this, uh, this, sh- this show this morning talking about, well, the lack, the lack of discussion on some of the most important uh, issues in this, in, this, in this federal election. And it's, I, think, I, I, th- I think we kind of what we have to conclude is that this is probably the, the most right-wing federal election that, that, has, ever, that has actually ever been that Australia has ever had. And you reckon? I reckon so. I reckon so because we what we, what we basically have is that we have a right-wing neoliberal party like like the liberal like the liberal party led by a businessman with strong connections with companies like Chevron. Um, we have a right we have a, a Labour party under under right-wing uh, leadership, uh, probably the most right-wing leadership in the, uh, in its ent- entire existence. You know, arg- arguably, arguably, and the Greens Party has also shift uh, has also taken the most right wing position that they ever had with, under the leadership of Richard Richard Genatelli. Yes. Hmm. So that's interesting. Your analysis. Yeah, we, uh, well, so, who, well, I think I think that my analysis is whoever wins, we lose. So <laughs> <laughs> there is. I mean, I mean, there is. Um, and, and then, of course, I've got to mention, of course, Nick Xenophon's uh, party is also is also projected, projected to make a big breakthrough in Senate in in, in Low House, and he himself it, it itself is also it's it's considered to be a centre centre party, but he, the, the, he has taken some uh, conservative uh, positions in, in in South Australia. So what we really have the problem what, what we really seem to have is that there's no left. There is no there actually there is no left wing party in Australia. Yep. Well, there's another thing, another quite a note about the elections. Um, in the Fed, in the Senate in Victoria, there's um, Darren Hinch's <laughs> Justice Party that another is one. number one on the um, on the ballot, ticket, yeah. which is scary because it means he could potentially win a seat. Um, a lot of um, it's the number one spot um, is usually uh, lots of parties, especially minor ones. While it's like winning the lottery if they win that if they get that um ditch in the ballot paper, especially for the amount of donkey votes that occur every election. But I guess um to for first time listeners to describe Darren Hinch, he's like a big sort of media personality, but his whole kind of political agenda is a very sort of reactionary law and order agenda that includes sort of attacking, you know, civil liberties. One of his main kind of things is to um he wants, you know, increase, you know, he probably wants to put more funding for prisons. He wants to have a um, a public sort of list um, for sex offenders. You know, I'm not defending sex offen- offenders, but you know, it's a very kind of 
very problematic to sort of promote a full public list. Very dictatorial. His approach is very dictatorial. Yeah, exactly. It does not gel with democracy. But we need to move on. Let's thank the guests uh, who appeared on this show. Very diverse, Um, very Farida Iqbal from... Um, equal love in and, so, and social science in <coughs> Perf, uh, okay. Then we have we had Ben Galinetsky from London from mm, Momentum. Well pronounced. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the Russians can pronounce Polish names. Very, oh, very well. that's true. That's true. <laughs> and um, uh, Miranda Stewart from the ANU, who's a professor in taxation. Yeah. So that's um, a, a, a good variety of lineup. You yeah. know, so hopefully uh, listeners enjoyed those interviews. Yeah. And thank now you listeners for listening. Oh, <coughs> Lali had something to say. That's okay. Oh. That's right. So, so um, we shall be back next Friday and is Zane back or is he gone? Zane is gone. Oh, well, no, for, for listeners yes, information, Zane's going away for a month. So yes. you'll have to put up with me <laughs> paneling. <laughs> and me. Uh, with uh, with with news and analysis and mm. other things. Yeah. Oh, but I won't be here next Friday because I will actually be at the Student Sustainability Conference. Dennis um, and I will survive. That's all right. Yeah, <laughs> we'll be fine. So, thank you, listeners, for listening, and hope you enjoyed the show. And we are happy to have feedback. And of course, don't forget we the programs available on podcast as well. So we shall leave with the uh, Green Left outro. Good morning, everyone. Have a good day. Good morning. Everyone have a good day. <laughs> This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper. Green Left Weekly provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to Green Left Weekly and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call one 800 634-206 For new subscribers it's only $10 for the first 7 issues Thank you for listening You are tuned to 3CR Community Radio 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au